Judges chapter 10. We just finished uh, the last time with our study of the one who had made himself to be king. The uh, story of Abimelech ended very badly for him. He was killed by a woman who dropped a stone on the top of his head from the, a tower that she was in. And uh, up until that time, he had been self-proclaimed, I guess you would say. Uh, but uh, he wasn't really one of the judges. It was kind of a, uh, a parenthesis in the study of the book of Judges where the author was indicating to us that when things got really bad, they got really, really bad. Well, chapter 10 is going to give a brief account of the next two judges and hardly says anything at all about them. We only know their names and where they were from. And so we'll look at those first two in the first five verses of chapter 10 rather quickly. It tells us in verse 1, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. And he judged 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. Now again, that's all that we've got on this man Tola. But take note of the fact that he judged Israel for a period of 23 years. That's longer than Samson judged the nation of Israel. And Samson was given a whole lot more press than anyone else outside of uh, Jephthah, or rather of uh, Gilead, Gideon there. I'll, I'll try to get the names right. They're all mixed up in my head. But anyway, this man, Tola, was just briefly mentioned here. And he's from Issachar, one of the northern tribes. And then in verse 3, it tells us the next judge. After him, it says, arose Jair, a Gileadite. And he judged Israel 22 years. Now, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in came on. Now, take note of the fact that, uh, again, he, there's nothing said specifically about his time of a judge other than the length of years, a total of 22 years. But we know nothing more about what he did, how he helped Israel, just like it was with Tola, so it is with Jair. They came on the scene, they judged during apparently times of peace and prosperity, and then they died and uh, that's all that the writer has given us for information. But it's interesting that Jair at least gives us a record of his family. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Uh, apparently he liked the number 30. And each of them had a city that they named with the same name in the territory of Gilead. Now that seems a bit confusing. Uh, well, where are you from? I'm from Havoth Gilead. Well, Havoth Jair, which one? Well, the 30th one, or the 22nd one. Anyway, they were very briefly mentioned here, and I'm sure that they had something of great importance to do during their time, but it's just not recorded for us. Now, this Jair was a Gileadite, and remember, Gilead is on the eastern side of the River Jordan in the territory of the East Manasseh. Remember, remember, Manasseh is split into two sections. One half of Manasseh is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, 
The other half of Manasseh is on the western side of the Jordan River, in within the territory of the Canaanites, now occupied by Manasseh. But this side of the, the Jordan River, the eastern side, Manasseh and Gad and Reuben are occupying that territory, and that's where Gilead is located, on that eastern side in the territory of that portion of Manasseh. Next, we get into a rather lengthy story with regard to the next judge. Not as lengthy as with Gideon, but it gives us a great deal of information about this next judge. And he is also from that same region of Gilead. And it tells us in verse 6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, or Ammon, uh, not Ammon, but uh, Aram, the gods of Aram, or Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. That's kind of an understatement. Look at all of the gods that they were serving. Every other god except for the one true God. They again had spiraled downward in a very, very terrible place once more, far away from their God. And so it says in verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Now the Philistines are people on the Mediterranean side of the nation of Israel, uh, what is now known as the Gaza Strip today. They occupied that area of Gaza. They had five major cities in that territory, and it's still known as Gaza today. But on the other side of the River Jordan, the people of Ammon, uh, well, you may be familiar with the capital city of Jordan. It's named with the same name, Amman, Jordan, and that's where they get the name from the people of Ammon who occupied that territory in those days. And so there's two issues that are being presented here. Uh, he's going to address the issue with the Ammonites first, and then afterward he's going to address the issue with the Philistines. But here, uh, this particular portion of Scripture is going to focus from this point on with regard to the impact that the Ammonites had over the people of Israel. And it says in verse 9, Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So the Ammonites were invading not only the northern tribes, which has been the focus primarily throughout most of the book of Judges up to this point, but now we're seeing some of the other tribes, Benjamin and Judah in the south, are impacted as well as Ephraim by this invasion of the Ammonites, uh, more or less directly due east from the city of Jerusalem uh, today. But it tells us again that Israel, the whole of Israel, was severely distressed. And so they cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now, here's a recognition of the fact that they had turned away from their God. And now, with all of this terrible oppression coming from the, the people of Ammon, they now are turning to their one God, 
who had been forsaken by them all this time. And it's just, again, a repetition of what they had been doing in the past, where they come to the place where they cry out to their God after having received such a terrible, uh, oppressive state by the hands of an enemy. So it is, again, happening once more, and they cried out to the Lord. But notice, apparently, the Lord speaks in some way so that they are able to know that God has responded. We're not told how this message from the Lord comes, but it's recorded here for us, beginning with verse 11, where it says, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God's response is, Hey, you guys, you forsake me. Why should I come back and help you now? So he's asking a valid question. He's stating some very, very truthful facts about the condition of their hearts. However, he always leaves room for repentance. And listen to what takes place next. In verse 15 it says, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You see what's happened here? They repented. They turned away from their other gods. They took all the idols and they apparently eliminated them. Of course, if you read through the Old Testament, most of the time when you see the people repenting, they repent only to a certain extent. And most of the times, it has to do with the fact that they continued to allow the high places where they would worship the other gods to be continually kept in place. So they did not destroy their high places. And that's likely the case here as well. However, the simple truth of this portion that we just read is that the children of Israel repented, acknowledged their sin, and asked the Lord to do whatever it is that he pleases to do to them, only would you please deliver us from this terrible oppression. So they realize that there is a cost, a consequence to their sin. The first thing is they repent of their sin, they commit themselves to serving the Lord, and they know that the Lord will not overlook that sin, but that that sin will have its consequences. And yet, they're saying, even in that, we ask you, O Lord, to turn your heart once again to us and deliver us this day from the Ammonites. And guess what? God did that very thing. Because his heart could not endure, or his soul could not endure, the misery of Israel. That's so sweet to know that our God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, he judges. Yes, he condemns sin. And yes, he uh, punishes the sinner. But he does not forsake the sinner. 
He allows room for repentance, and when that repentance comes, it is a blessing to that person to know that God will indeed forgive all of our sins, casting them as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says. What a beautiful thing that we know about our God, that He forgives, not once, not twice, not seven times, not seventy times seven, always. So now we see the ending of the chapter when the response of God is known. It says in verse 17, Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they realize that the Ammonites are going to attack sometime soon and they have nobody to lead them against this invasion. So they're troubled. They're concerned. It's part of the judgment of the Lord. The Lord hadn't yet completely delivered them, but delivery is deliverance is on the way. They just haven't seen it yet. And so they're still in a state of uncertainty, a state of uh, deep concern over the outcome. They don't know yet if God is going to answer their prayer, and they certainly don't know how God will answer their prayer because they don't have anybody that they can turn to to lead them in this particular situation. However, chapter 11 begins to unfold for us God's plan, and it has to do with a man named Jephthah. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So the story begins with regard to Jephthah, identifying him as the son of a man whose name was Gilead, living in the territory of Gilead. But his name was Gilead, and he had a wife by whom he had several sons. But he also had a woman that he had a relationship with outside of wedlock, a harlot that is not named, but she bore him a son, and that name of that son was Jephthah. Now the other sons, once they had grown up, it says very clearly that they despised Jephthah and they did not want him to have any portion in the inheritance from their father. So they basically must have threatened him because it tells us very clearly that he fled from them. It tells us in verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Jephthah would have gathered together with himself men who were worthless men. But he went out into the land of Tob, it tells us, which is east of the territory of Manasseh, into the Arabian desert area. And apparently, mostly nomadic peoples lived in that region, and he got these men to join together with him to perform various raids against those nomadic tribes that were in that region. Not against the people of Israel, but against the people of the Arabia area outside of the nation of Israel. So it says in verse 4, It came to pass after a time 
that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So word must have spread that Jephthah was a very successful and valiant man. It tells us, remember back in verse 1, that he was a mighty man of valor. Uh, but they're now wanting him to come back to Gilead to become their leader. They recognize his skill as a leader. They recognized the fact that he's a valiant warrior, that he's got already a group of men who are following him that could form the heart of a force of soldiers that would come against the Ammonites. And so his response in verse 7 is given, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? So he's asking a very valid question. Hey, you didn't want me around before. Now why are you asking me to come and be your leader? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go out with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, Shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah, a city in the territory of Manasseh. So he agrees to the arrangement. He's going to take the army, defeat the Ammonites, Hopefully, he's not sure that that's going to necessarily happen, but he intends to at least at this point. And as a result of his winning this fight against the Ammonites, they will make him to be the head of that territory. As it turns out, again, this is a very localized setting. It's not the entire nation of Israel that's impacted, but it is a portion of them, including, as we read earlier, Benjamin and Judah and Ephraim, as well as Manasseh on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Verse 12 tells us, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peacefully. That wasn't exactly quite how it was. You may remember in our study in the books of Moses, Moses recorded as they were heading towards the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan, that they needed to pass through Moab and then Edom and then Ammon and then the uh, Amorites which lived further north. But they did not take the land of the Ammonites. And Jephthah is now going to explain the true history of what actually took place. So there's a bit of a long portion here, but it's worth that we read the time this time through so that we would 
remember, refresh our memory as to what exactly did take place. It tells us in verse 14, So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Remember that they stopped at Kadesh Barnea and they were to go into the land from there, but they couldn't do that. So they came back to Kadesh and instead of going north into the land of Canaan, they went across the Jordan River at the south of the territory of Canaan into the territory of the land where Esau lived in Edom and then in Moab as well. And it says in verse 15, as, uh, as he's proceeding to tell us about these things, he, uh, verse 16 continues, For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. So they couldn't pass through those lands to get into the land of Canaan. They had to circle around them into that Arabian desert area. It says in verse 18, And then they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom, and the land of Moab came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. So they never ever went into the land because they were told they would not be able to do that. So they didn't invade Moab. They didn't invade Edom. They didn't invade anybody. They were only wanting to pass through the land. They had no intention of taking any territory, they just wanted to get into the land of Canaan, the most convenient and quick way through those other nations. But because they weren't allowed to, they had to go around them. So that's what he's telling them so far. It says in verse 19, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. Now, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, had conquered Ammon, and they were part of the territory of the Amorites, as well as their own territory north of Ammon. But at that time, when Moses was bringing his people through the land, and in preparation, or Joshua rather, in preparation of getting into the territory of the land of Canaan, the Amorites resisted, and the king, their king Sihon, who didn't trust Israel, it tells us in verse 20, Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus, Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. In other words, they took possession of the land because they won the fight. The battle was won by the nation of Israel and the Amorites were defeated 
and that included the territory of Ammon as well as the territory of the Amorites. So, in defeating Sihon, they were able then to take possession of that land that had been occupied by the Amorites and had once belonged to the Ammonites. But they did it legitimately. And take note of the fact that it tells us that Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. That is the precedent that has been set by every single war that has ever been fought. When you fight a war, you fight against an enemy, and you end up defeating that enemy, then it's very common that that enemy's territory would become the possession of the victor. That is how many wars have been fought and decided. And over the course of the many, many years of men's history, there are several, several examples of that kind of taking of land because of the spoils of war. It is a precedent that has been well established throughout man's history. So I'm saying that because that's exactly what has happened in modern day Israel with regard to the Golan Heights. They were attacked. They didn't initiate the battle. They were attacked. They had to defend themselves. They fought back and they pushed back and they ended up taking territory that was not theirs at that particular time. They took that territory and they kept it and they possessed it because it was part of that spoils of war arrangement that they believed was still in place. And it was. It was accepted by the majority of the world. However, that acceptance has waned very much over the past few decades. But the principle still remains. They took possession of the land because they defeated the enemy who attacked them. Same thing with the western uh, Jordanian uh, West Bank. They took that in the 67 war also with the same principle, the same precedent by victory in war after they were attacked, they pushed back, they ended up taking more territory to allow themselves to build a buffer between them and their enemies who were wanting still to attack. So it was very, very wise for them to do that. They did it also with the Gaza Strip. And again, over the years, they've been criticized. But they've given back some of that land in Gaza. Look what it has done. It hasn't accomplished anything as far as peace in Israel is concerned. But the nations want them to give it all back. They want the Golan Heights to be given back to Syria. They want the West Bank to be given back to Jordan. They want Gaza to be expanded upon. And they want the city of Jerusalem on the West Bank side to be given to the Palestinians as their own capital. That's what the world wants. But again, if you look at the precedent in history, it makes no sense for them to make such demands on the people of Israel. They've never ever made such demands on any other nation but the nation of Israel. And that's just not correct. It's not fair. It's not right. They took that land because their God had given it to them. It tells us again, I'll reread, well, 
from verse 23, Now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? The answer should be, obviously, no, you shouldn't possess it, because the Lord God of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. It was the Amorites that they took the land from, not the Ammonites. Similar name, but different people. And then it says, in verse 24, Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Of course they would. That's exactly what they would do. And that's exactly what should be expected of any nation, of any victorious nation over another nation. That land which is taken should become theirs as a possession. That's what the precedent has always been. And then he continues in the latter part of verse 24, So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. So it's theirs. Ammon, you cannot have that land back because it belongs to the Lord. All of that territory that Manasseh and Gad and and uh, Reuben are occupying in that eastern side of the Jordan River, they took possession of it because they had defeated the enemies who attacked them. So that's a good answer, but it's not accepted. It tells us in verse 25, before we get to that next step, And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? No. Did he ever fight against them? No. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? So there's been over 300 years that they could have, if it was right for them to do so, take that land back, but they didn't. So Jephthah is asking diplomatically very, very sound questions that really have no way of being rebuked or refuted. So in verse 27 he says, Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the Judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. So they would not agree to these things. They were stubbornly refusing to accept this very, very sound argument of Jephthah. They wanted to go fight against Israel because they thought they could defeat Israel. However, they didn't know that Israel's God was on their side. So now we have the continuation of the story, and before he goes into battle, here's an area of Scripture that has been very, very troublesome indeed for many, many expositors over the years. And it perhaps doesn't have a very clear answer uh, to exactly why these things took place as they are outlined here. But remember, Jephthah is just a man, and he's flawed, just like David was flawed, just like Solomon was flawed, just like all of the patriarchs were flawed in one way or another, just like Gilead and all of the other judges before him. Jephthah knew about the Lord, but he had some perhaps misleading con concepts as to what God's word might have said with regard to the things that he's going to now uh, speak to the Lord about. It tells us in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's a good start, by the way. That's again one of the few times in this 
book of Judges where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the judges. It happened with Othniel. It happened with Gilead. It's now happening here with Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord is coming upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him to do what God intends for him to do. So this is a great thing that God is with Jephthah in this. There's no question that God is on his side as he now proceeds to go to battle against the Ammonites. And it says, He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, and this is where we run into a bit of difficulty, If you indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now it appears in this particular statement that he's making, he's making, first of all, a vow to the Lord. And a vow to the Lord was something that he had to do, because it was a commitment like a marriage vow, which today doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but it meant a lot to them, and a vow meant a lot to Jephthah. He intended to keep this vow. He made it to the Lord as a covenantal commitment that he would do that if God did this. It's probably not a good thing to do, friends, uh, to make a vow without really thinking it through and making sure that the consequences of such a vow won't result in a terrible thing taking place. And unfortunately, this was not a vow that would be considered to be a good vow to make. He didn't know what would be coming out of his house. He was thinking perhaps an animal. He might have kept some sheep in his house, perhaps a family pet, something like that that he could offer on a sacrificial altar as a burnt offering to the Lord. We'll get to more of that as we continue. It goes now into the story of the battle itself. In verse 32 it says, So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aroer as far as Minith, twenty cities, and to abel Kiramim with a great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Great victory. And we're not told how many he has in his army. It's not necessarily like Gideon's 300. It's not necessarily against 153 or 135,000 soldiers. But it was a large contingency. And they slaughtered all of them, going through 20 cities of the Ammonites. And they were soundly defeated. A great victory for Jephthah and his men. So in verse 34, getting back to his vow, it tells us when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child because uh, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Frankly, he could have, if he had known the word of God well enough, to understand that you can make a vow 
and then turn around later and disavow the vow. But it would be costly. You would have to pay a redemption price. Uh, but it could be done. But he's telling his daughter, I cannot go back on this vow. He's considering his vow to be a permanent commitment that he's got to follow through with. And unbeknownst to him previously, his daughter was that which came out of the house on his return. And so she said to him in verse 36, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me first. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander in the mountains, or on the mountains, and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. The question is, and some expositors think in one way and others think in another way regarding this particular vow. Did Jephthah actually offer her up as a burnt offering on a sacrifice, as a sacrifice? That would be against God's perfect plan, certainly. And there's plenty of place in the Word of God that God abhors the taking of the life of any child on an altar for sacrifice. It was an abomination to God. God would not want that to happen. It wasn't God's purpose or plan for that to happen anywhere in Israel. So, did he actually offer her up as a burnt offering? The other explanation, and I believe very, very sincerely and strongly that this is the correct understanding of what actually took place. Because God is God and he has established his law in Israel, we see in verse 37 one thing that is stated regarding this daughter of Jephthah. It says that she wanted him to allow her to go into the mountains to bewail her virginity with her friends. So the implication is that the offering of his daughter was not as a burnt offering, but as an offering to the Lord in service, that she would remain a perpetual virgin. Perhaps in Shiloh or some other way that God would be pleased to use her in some kind of service to him and that she would remain a virgin all the days of her life. Now, that makes really, really very good sense. And it would be a very costly thing for Jephthah because he had no other children. So it's very likely that Jephthah was willing to sacrifice his heritage to follow through with his vow that he had made to the Lord through making her to be uh, unavailable for any man to have her as wife. 
Verse 39 is what I believe closes the chapter on this particular issue. Because it says in verse 39, it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which she, he had vowed, and she knew no man. So that statement coupled with the fact that in verse 37 it tells us she wanted to bewail her virginity indicates very strongly that this lesser, less severe option is probably what actually did take place. Perhaps we'll know for certain, but I'm leaning very heavily towards that likelihood rather than the other. Finally, it tells us in chapter 12, another part of the story of Jephthah has to do with the opposition that he had met with some of the other peoples, especially with regard to the tribe of Ephraim. It's interesting to note, by the way, that back in chapter 8, Ephraim did something very similar with Gilead as they are now doing here with Jephthah. So in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphron, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. So they're angry at him for not letting them be a part of the armies that went out against the Ammonites. But that wasn't exactly the truth at all, because it tells us in verse 2, And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. He had asked them to come. They did not go. And they're trying to accuse him of not letting them go when it was they who had refused to go, and they're now threatening him over this. So this is cause for great dispute. And it angers Jephthah that they would think that they could get away with such a thing. He continues and says in verse 3, So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim because they were wanting to fight. They wanted to do battle against Jephthah and his men. And so he, greet, he meets them along the Jordan River territory between uh, the eastern and the su- western side of the, the river. They're meeting at the fords where they can cross over the Jordan River and their armies are now head to head. He gathered all of his men to fight against Ephraim. It says, And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileads are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So they were casting stones at them. They were making false claims. They were talking about the fact that they were fugitives in their eyes. It's not so. They weren't fugitives. They were people of God who had settled on the eastern side of the River Jordan. And they did exactly as God intended for them to do with this battle. So Ephraim is very, very wrong in having initiated this situation and this battle that ensued. 
But it tells us in verse 5, Then the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibbeth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. <laughs> so it was a test. They knew that the Ephraimites had a difficulty in pronunciation of the sh, S-H sound. They could say it Sibboleth, which means, by the way, river or stream, but they couldn't say Shibboleth. It's kind of like French Canadians can't say the T-H sound this. They say dis. And, you know, it's very common among Canadian French-speaking people that they aren't able to form those TH sounds the way we can. Plenty of examples of dialect like that throughout the world. But they took advantage of that difference in dialect to identify whether this person was telling the truth or not. If he said, no, I'm not an Ephraimite, all they had to do was hear him say the word Sibboleth. And when they couldn't pronounce the SH, they knew it was an Ephraimite and not one of their own. And as a result, they would take that one and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. What a tragedy. All because Ephraim wanted to have some glory that they didn't want to participate in in its early stages. So it tells us in verse 7, the end of Jephthah's reign not reign, but time as a judge. It says that, judge, uh, that Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. doesn't even give us exactly where he was buried, but he died and was buried in one of the cities in his home territory of Gilead. Now, the last several verses of chapter 12 give us more information about three judges altogether that are included here. And just like at the beginning of chapter 10, there's very little spoken about them. They've given very, very little information regarding their time of being a judge. So when we read the final several verses of chapter 12, we will have gone through a total of 10 judges altogether. But these three are named here. In verse 8 it tells us, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Kind of an interesting way that he presents this one, very similar to Jair, with the number 30 being repeated. But that's all we know about him. And it tells us in verse 10, then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now, we're not absolutely certain whether this is Bethlehem in Zebulun, the northern tribe of Zebulun, or whether it's Bethlehem in Judah, which is known as Bethlehem Ephrathah, where Christ was born. It probably is the Zebulun Bethlehem, but we don't know for certain. But in any case, this man, Ibzan, was a judge over Israel 
for only seven years. And it tells us then Ibsen was buried in Bethlehem. And then after him, in verse 11, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Aijalon in the country of Zebulon. So he, again, is given just a few lines of text regarding his time as a judge. It just simply says that he judged Israel ten years. We know nothing more about him other than the fact that he was also from Zebulon. Finally, it gives us the next judge in verse 13. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. So we're getting a a bit of a mixture of numbers here. 30 still involved, but there are 40 sons and 30 grandsons and a total of 70 donkeys. And by the way, the donkey was a picture of luxury, if you will. It was a mode of travel that they would consider to be royal, in a sense. Or somebody with great wealth would have a large number of donkeys that they could ride on in that fashion. Kind of like you give yourself a Cadillac or a Corvette, and you give your son two of them. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys, and he judged Israel for eight years. So a total then of 15, uh, 25 years of between these three judges. And then it says, Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So again, he's from the territory of Ephraim. And he judged Israel for eight years. We don't know what went on during those periods of 25 years from the time that Ibzan began and the time that Abdon ended his time of the judge. But these facts are given very rapidly because the author wants to get to the next two judges, the final two judges. The next one takes up the largest amount of space recorded in the book of Judges. And of course, we all know him as one of the most famous of the judges, the man named Samson. And we'll be looking at Samson the next time we get together. Won't be next week, remember. We're taking next week uh, off because of the Christmas season, but we're going to be back in two weeks, and we'll be looking from verse 1 of chapter 13 at the life of Samson, great part of the history of the nation of Israel. Don't want to miss it. Till then, God bless. Grace and peace.